Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your hosts, Mike Fagan and Tim Ben. We're opinion, fact, informative, and your alert system. Now let's get ready to rumble. Good day once again, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for rejoining Mike and Tim on Visiting with the Sheriff this Wednesday episode here on Right Spokane Perspective. I hope everybody out there is safe and sane. Now, Stephen was an up-and-coming comedian and a prodigal. Raised in a Christian family, he struggled with doubt after his dad and two brothers died in a plane crash. By his early 20s, he'd lost his faith. But he found it one night on the frigid streets of Chicago. A stranger gave him a pocket New Testament, and Stephen cracked open the pages. An index said those struggling with anxiety should read Matthew 6, verses 27 through 34, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Stephen turned there, and the words kindled a fire in his heart. He recalls, I was absolutely immediately lightened. I stood on the street corner in the cold and read the sermon, and my life has never been the same. Such is the power of Scripture. The Bible is unlike any other book, for it's alive. We don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Scripture presents the most powerful force on the planet, a force that transforms and leads us toward spiritual maturity. Let's open it and read it out loud, asking God to ignite our hearts. He promises that the words he's spoken will not return to him empty, but will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. Our lives will never be the same. You know the drill, folks. Father God, you are a loving and compassionate God. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Please make it alive in our lives today. In your son's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we always start the show with some, with some inspiration where you kind of throw the book at them, you know, like the Bible. <laughs> but we, we got someone in studio we're hoping doesn't throw the book at us. But uh, <laughs> it's his first time on the air with us since the, I, I think, since the election. Yes, absolutely. And we're talking about uh, Sheriff John Knowles. That's absolutely correct. And as we always strongly encourage you folks, you got to log on or make a telephone call. If you are very interested in investigating a little bit further, you can do so by going to www.spokanesheriff.org or www.spokanecounty.org. If you can't do the internet thing there, folks, pick up that telephone and dial them up locally. You can do so by dialing 509-477-2240. Again, that'll be 509-477-2240. And with that said, welcome to the Right Spokane Perspective, Sheriff. How are you tonight? I am well, actually. Thank you for having me. It's very good to be back. I think this is the third third time back with you gentlemen so again thank you for having me oh yeah, you bet absolutely well i'll tell you something sheriff i mean no agenda no format i mean this is an open mic for you uh congratulations on becoming the new sheriff here in spokane county i happen to see advertisements for recruitment everywhere so how is that going you know we're actually doing really really well we, again, a year ago, the county commissioners really uh, put their money where their mouth is, where their commitment to the sheriff's office, the men and women of the sheriff's office are, and gave us a really, really competitive contract. I think also in this day and age for uh, people who are already working in law enforcement, who are considering working in law enforcement, working for an elected sheriff has some... 
attractiveness to it that maybe working for a city police department that may be heavily influenced by a city council, you know, working for an elected sheriff, you don't have those influences at times. So I think we are an attractive option to a lot of police departments around the state in Washington in particular, because you tend to get, uh, you know, more so on the west side, but a little bit on this side of the state, you get some city councils that are maybe a little progressive, maybe a little more liberal than uh, a lot of police officers feel comfortable with. Well, we're seeing that in the news, definitely with the city of Spokane and a city council that's really bumping up inside of or next to or I don't know, around executive government powers with uh, Spokane law enforcement. So yeah, definitely having an elected sheriff. It's, it's interesting that having an elected sheriff takes the politics out of policing instead of, you know, basically having a police chief that's appointed and you got a city council in there running amok on their policies. So you don't have to worry about that. So you've You've been in the sheriff's office for a long time already, and I wanted to add, too, on the resources for the listeners that your office is also on Facebook, and you guys put out alerts and statements, and just recently you did that having to do with Washington state law. So what kind of, now that's not a council, obviously, but kind of, it's the Washington state legislature instead of a council. They're kind of trying to do some things that would affect law enforcement, and uh, law enforcement isn't taking it lightly. That's correct. There's been four bills introduced in the Washington state legislature, and then I'm assuming companion bills in the Senate that are aimed at, at least according to the the legislature, the legislators who wrote the bills, the intent was to reduce gun violence. Mm-hmm. Well, the way they're going after reducing gun violence is taking away your Second Amendment right exactly. um, to keep and bear arms is really what's happening here. Now, um, I saw that in the Facebook letter that was produced by the sheriff's office here in Spokane County. And obviously the, the Washington Association of Sheriffs is, is really not in favor of this because it wants law enforcement to go after law-abiding citizens instead of going after criminals. And so how does that make our streets safer? What's the kind of the dynamics in the law that you see you know, there's problems with. Well, so there's a problem with every aspect of the legislation they've written. Everybody knows. Everybody who pays attention to human nature, how we behave, knows that an inanimate object like a firearm is not inherently dangerous to anyone. You know, I could take a a loaded firearm and put it on this desk next to us, and nothing is going to happen to anyone in this room from that firearm. Yeah, I noticed that the firearms that I keep in storage and don't pay much attention to, they the only active thing they really do is rust. That's (laughs) that's correct, and somehow manage to get dirty if you don't clean them often enough. But exactly. anyway, we, we all inherently know that that particular device, that weapon is not a weapon until it's picked up by someone who has ill intent. The legislature seems to be completely dismissive of that fact. One of the bills that they have introduced flies completely in the face of the Second Amendment. And it is that there's this proposal, this law, this legislation that is going to require anyone who wants to purchase any firearm Don't make a mistake. It is not only pistols, not only semi-automatic rifles. No, it's any firearm. You have to go to the Washington State Patrol, apply for a license to purchase a firearm. Now, I know how the Constitution is written, and I know how our constitutional rights work. They're Mm God-given. Our founding fathers recognized that those are things that every person has. It isn't up for the government to give it, as is being done in the in the writing of this bill 
it, the purpose of the Constitution, that's a God-given right, and mm-hmm. there are amendments and laws that are produced to limit the government's authority. And there's nothing in that document that gave the government the authority to give us the right to purchase a firearm. So that is a that is one example of a piece of legislation that is just blatantly unconstitutional. It's it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and how you does and it make I, we all know. safety? I mean, how all these people that I'm seeing on your site, because that's the other thing you can see on the Facebook site for the Sheriff's Department, is when they make arrests there's details on how those arrests were made and you know I've, I've seen a number of times where you guys have reported that you're arresting individuals with narcotics who already have felony records that are not supposed to be obtaining firearms and so not only do they have a firearm that they're not supposed to have but they're using it to protect themselves while they're doing drug deals correct and that piece of legislation and i feel the same way about all four bills the mm-hmm. preemption law bill the uh, semi-automatic firearm ban um, and there was one more that uh, created mandatory training before you can buy a firearm not one of those things will increase public safety for the simple fact and you alluded to it is is the criminals don't care they won't obey the laws they don't currently obey the laws that we have now i would i would suggest to the legislature if they if they were to ask that maybe there was some legislation they could put forward, like, I don't know, maybe holding the current criminals and the convicted criminals accountable in a fashion that actually corrects behavior and maybe giving us a reasonable and effective controlled substance law. Those two things would severely limit the crime that we are being victimized by in our communities statewide. Well, right, because you got the Blake decision. So here's the legislature wanting law enforcement, the state patrol, sheriff's departments, to basically expand what they have to do as far as paperwork and policing and licenses and all the stuff that you have to do in approving firearm purchases with their expanded regulation. So you have that on your plate, but you still can't arrest people that are basically distributing poison to people that are killing more people than firearms in our community, the drugs, with the Blake decision. Oh, it wasn't. No, it's not. They're not my pants. That was somebody else's drugs and somebody right. else's pants, right? That's it. So where are we at with that? Well, I will. I want to add one more thing, and we'll talk about the Blake decision, and I'll talk about my opinion, which might, which might not be as widespread as a lot of others on how we fix the Blake decision. But if people want to look at what our legislature can do to make our community safer, they don't need to look any further than about 20 miles east of Spokane in the state of Idaho. They are not suffering from the levels of violent crime and disorder that we are. Right. And We all know there's no wall that goes up between Washington State and Idaho. It is all policy driven. Yes. It's an an intellectual wall because of it. It's an an intellectual wall. Most anybody, especially criminals, know you approach that Idaho border, there's a different feel to that state. And it's a a state that you're not going to get away with speeding because they got more officers per capita. You're not going to get away with, you know, dealing drugs because their penalties are higher. And you're not going to get away with possessing a firearm illegally and just walk away from it. And, you know, they're not trying to take away their citizens' rights to keep and bear arms in the name of public safety. Actually, I think they affirmed them. They, I think they did. <laughs> yes. They're correct. So I think that's as far as our legislature has to look as far as howing to craft good, having how to craft good policy and, and what they need to do as far as, you know, 
making people accountable in the state of Washington because they are absolutely not doing that in any way, shape, or form. Now we were we were moving on to a different topic. Well, well before you remind we, me real quick. Before we move on, though, I want the listeners to know that you took some time yourself, even though you're busy getting everything moving into the sheriff's department here since you were just elected. You took the time to go over to Olympia and testify against these bills that are going to you know fly in the face of our constitutionally protected rights to protect ourselves and bear arms. So kudos on on going over there and facing the legislature because it's not always uh i don't know it's kind of thankless yeah it definitely is and i'll tell you something tim you know the folks that comprise the state of illinois right now are up in arms no pun intended okay because one of the first things that their newly sat and sworn in state legislature did was to go ahead and pass laws already on weapons bans involving magazine capacities for not just the long rifles or rifles in general but pistols also you've got at least 74 Illinois Sheriff Department that are saying that this violates the Second Amendment. Well, basically I'm the state wants to do what the city of Chicago has already put into place. Yes. So the one of the cities that has the worst amount, you know, what, 20 people shot every weekend, I think? Yeah. Is yeah, it's it, bad. Is it mostly on holiday weekends. We're talking upwards of 100 people shot in a weekend in Chicago. So, yeah, that worked. <laughs> well, we will see how that legal battle is going to unfold. And I'm hoping that there are other state legislatures right now that are in session that are considering these types of bans and restrictions, and they've got an eye cast to the state of Illinois right now because I kind of have a feeling if you've got that many sheriff's departments, 74 of them, I don't know how many counties Illinois got, but that seems like a pretty huge number to me. You got 74 sheriff's departments saying, no, 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 we're not going to enforce this new law. And it violates the Second Amendment, period. Well, it violates common sense. And, and, and we <laughs> that just too. need things that actually work so law enforcement can protect the citizenry from criminals because uh, law-abiding citizens don't run around shooting people in neighborhoods like the, the drug cartels and, and things of that nature. So anyhow, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back with Sheriff. John Knowles in just a moment. To our Spokane area veterans and their families, if you haven't checked out the Hilliard Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 1474, located at Diamond and Regal Street in Spokane, you gotta be there or be square. The Hilliard VFW is there to assist you and yours with all your VA questions. Give them a call at 487-3784. Weekly bingo, cards, bowling, dart tournaments, and meal specials are just a few more things that the Hilliard VFW offers. Stop on by, give them a call, 487-3784. We want to thank God and you, the listeners, for the opportunity and ability to continue the Right Spokane Perspective radio show and podcast programming. We sincerely thank you, Mike Fagan, for your 12 years of dedication to our listeners and guests of the Right Spokane Perspective, and we wish you well in your sabbatical and anticipate hearing from you again from time to time. Listeners, it's because of your support we will continue to bring you facts, commentary, and alerts on what's happening in local government, politics, and issues affecting us all. Please send your most generous support to Right Spokane Perspective, LLC. P.O. Box 7620, Spokane, Wa 99207. Thanks again, and back to the show. And welcome back from the break, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining Mike and Tim on Visiting with the Sheriff this Wednesday episode here 
on Right Spokane Perspective. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know, once again, I'm hoping, like I said, that you've got other state legislators and other uh, law enforcement agencies, if you will, that are watching intently there, the state of Illinois right now to see what similarities there may very well be between the various state legislatures and what it is that they're trying to regulate or restrict or ban now. And I do know that Washington State has already come out with their magazine limitations and restrictions. That happens to be one of the criteria that ended up getting passed over in Illinois. So, you know, if these sheriff's departments are saying it violates the Second Amendment, then it sounds to me like there's going to be a court battle coming up. Well, I think so. And that it sounds like that's what's going to happen. And let's hope that it sets a nationwide precedence. Yeah. And I think that's what's going to happen in in Washington as well. And Sheriff Knowles was uh, over there in the legislature basically telling him that. And so, you know, moving on from the firearms issues, because I think that uh, we got to take a shot at another issue here. And it should probably be the Blake decision you wanted to mention before the break. Yeah, I think, you know, people are well aware, and it is my firm belief that the lack of a meaningful controlled substance law here in the state of Washington has really fueled our violent crime rates in our communities. Uh, It is certainly wreaking havoc on the lives of, of people throughout this community, irrespective of socioeconomic class, race, gender. It doesn't really matter. Um, the, the drug epidemic in the state of Washington is really, really high. It's really, really out of control. And it's because no one is being held accountable for using us. Essentially, no. the Blake decision, you know, for, for the listeners who aren't aware, um, it was the Washington State Supreme Court invalidated our controlled substance possession law stating that there was uh, nothing in the language that said that a person had to have some level of intent when they were possessing, some level of knowledge. Could have been a very simple solution by the legislature. They could have added one word to the law which said if a person knowingly possesses a controlled substance. They chose not to do that. They scaled back on what the law said. They said a person has to knowingly possess a controlled substance, but they made it a gross misdemeanor. And additionally, for the first two times you are caught by law enforcement possessing a controlled substance, they cannot arrest you. That would be really nice if that law was transitioned over for like parking tickets or or speeding tickets that we just get a little pamphlet that says you shouldn't speed. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Right. Be, yeah, you, know, you bet. But, but well, it doesn't I'll really work you. that way. But it does if you got fentanyl in your pocket. Sure. It just happens to be the number one killer of of people age uh, 18 to 45 in our country killed over 100,000 people last year. It did. But I tell you something, Tim, you know, I'm holding on to a headline right now. And here's the headline. Children under 14 dying from fentanyl poisoning at a faster rate than any other age group. And that's being brought to us courtesy of the Center Square. The Center Square. Yeah, that's local that's media local, outlets. Yeah. So, so, again, I am hopeful that the state legislature is paying attention to what the heck is going on around them. Well, I'm not going to... I'm not going to hold my breath on the legislature paying attention, but they do have to listen to the local sheriff. So what are your thoughts on that? Not just people that are knowingly doing drugs, dying, but children. Well, and I think what's important with any controlled substance law is that there has to be some level of accountability. There is no doubt in my mind, and and unfortunately for me, like many other people in Spokane County, um, I've had a front row seat to watch someone go through the awful disease of of addiction, and I've watched them get clean and be in recovery as well. What I can tell you about fentanyl, which is one of the worst drugs that we've seen in a long, long time, is it is permeating through every part of our community at every level. It is 
an excruciatingly painful drug to detoxify from, and it is almost impossible to do that without assistance. Wow. So people will not willingly do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the reality of that drug, as it is with several others as well. well. heroin and... You know, other, but, others that just grab a hold of your life and flush it. I they, mean, and there's nothing do. you can do. There's no life preserver that you can throw over the edge of the, the toilet bowl. You're just, your life's flushed if something doesn't happen. Right. And something has to interrupt. And with the way our law currently is, where the only thing the police can do is offer you treatment twice. And if you don't take advantage of it, then the third time, if we've done a good job keeping an accounting of how many times we've arrested you, right. then we can arrest you. Not book you, we can cite you for a gross misdemeanor and send you on your way and be into the legal system. So I think the legislature is going to tackle this problem. And of course, you know, just like everything else, every law, you'll have people among the spectrum of ideas of how to work this. We have a lot of our very, very conservative members who want to just do what that what could have very easily been done at the beginning, which is saying just add knowingly to the statute, make it a felony. Uh, We also have some very, very progressive people on the very, very far left side who just want to be, you know, legalized drugs and just have it not be an arrestable offense anymore. I personally, because I firmly believe we need accountability, we need something we can arrest somebody for. We need space in our jail to put people that we arrest them for. It can be a gross misdemeanor, in my opinion, that will allow the police to make an arrest, do what we need to do. I think we need to make a treatment available to people. And I think we might start thinking about treating it like a DUI, mm-hmm. where you, you're arrested, you get put into treatment, you either succeed, fail, you relapse. If anybody's any any familiarity with, with how treatment goes and how recovery goes, there's, there's going to be some relapses in there, and you can still be in recovery. We have to give people the opportunity to fail. But maybe after the third conviction, maybe it's a felony after that, kind of like a DUI is right. today. I think my personal opinion is we have to give people the opportunity to get better. We have to give them the opportunity to change because we have a lot of people who, who do go into recovery, and they succeed, and they, they live wonderful, very productive lives and they're fantastic, amazing people once they get free of that drug. Right, right. So as long as we're not saddling with a felony from the start, I think that's advantageous to the community. But remember, arrest is part of the solution because, you know, I've talked to people who've been addicted, particularly to fentanyl, and they say no one will voluntarily quit on their own. They have to have something that forces them into that recovery situation. I would say that it would be less than a 1% category of people that quit doing the the heroin and fentanyl on their own because of the either law enforcement's ability to intercede or uh, parents, you know, loved ones that are able to say, hey, look, something's got to be done here. And then they involve someone. So I, I think that, you know, moving on from there, it's not really moving very far from the fentanyl discussion or heroin, but we'll move down to Camp Hope or Dope, as we call it here. And and, you know, we're, we're seeing the numbers being diminished at, at uh, Camp Hope. Some of it has to do with the cities in lawsuits right now trying to figure out how they can clear it out. Obviously, I think the number's diminishing at Camp Dope because there's less dope because you guys keep arresting their dealers. Well, I will tell you, when the temporary restraining order was put in place, uh, I asked uh, Chief Meidel if he would like our assistance and maybe we would form a task force and start, you know, really start cracking down on people surrounding that camp. Not just the people in the camp, right? If they're committing crimes, yes, they're going to see us 
this. If they they commit a crime and they walk out of the camp, we're going to deal with it. If they commit a crime out into the community surrounding Camp Hope, we're going to deal with it. And we kind of saw some really, really good results up front. And we had some other detectives uh, units, you know, one in the valley and then one downtown who were you know, doing some work in Camp Hope with the residents and things like that, that kind of came to fruition at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that has made a difference, but make no mistake, a lot of it, it the, the conditions at Camp Hope have been pretty lousy. If anybody who's ever spent any time outside, I've done a lot of winter camping and things like that. It, it's not nice at 15 degrees, but you can stay warm if you're dry at yeah. 15 degrees. When things are 32 and 33 degrees and soaking wet and the mud's up to your ankles and everything, it's pretty lousy. Yeah. And that's what they've had. So well, in some of the dirt down there, I don't know that it's just mud. <laughs> I know you you are you are potentially correct there. Yep. But but I will say the conditions have not been great and we have done a lot of really good work at the Trent Resource Shelter, making that a much better place than it was, say, back in November for people to go. Um, yep. and our daily counts have shown that. I mean I think the daily counts averaging around three hundred and thirty to three hundred and seventy people, depending. Nice. Which is which is about hundred and twenty to hundred and fifty better than it was back in November. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, as you, as everybody knows, if you make a place more livable, people will come. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more livable. Obviously, the outside temperatures, those muddy conditions, the cold, the wet, the, the lack of drug dealers visiting the camp. I think that all those things are are helping. So is there another topic you'd like to cover today? Well, I will say, um, let's, let's hit Camp Hope for just a second more. Kind of what, what can we expect in the future? As we get down to the last hundred and... 30, 140 campers. These are going to be the hardcore people who it doesn't really matter what option you offer them. Either their substance use disorder or their mental health disorder is such that they're not, I mean, they're going to be pretty hard, uh, hardcore and not want to leave. So this is why we are really working with the state. And I think the state is really willing to work with us now to start working on, okay, what kind of solutions can we provide these people? Some of the people who are left in the camp are disabled enough that maybe a normal shelter option just really wouldn't work for a number of different reasons. So that's why we're asking the state to come into the emergency operations center, sit down with us, help us figure out, okay, what solutions can we put in place to get that last 140 hardcore out of there and into a situation that's better than a field in the mud, sure. um, things like that. Right, so absolutely. It's going to take well, creative solutions. Well, yeah. Well, and of course, the state budgets that are getting passed, we're looking at, at where dollars are being put. And one of the things they could do to uh, prevent another future Camp Dope is uh, maybe put a freeway interchange there. But they've decided not to do that. So you're going to see those high numbers of traffic on your arterials. And we saw with Camp Dope an article out of the Inlander where upwards of $36 million, million. <laughs> were put to just several hundred people over a year. What what could the sheriff's office do with that budget? <laughs> you know, it's not helpful to uh, consider such things. I mean, we are building a, a state-of-the-art training facility out on the West Plains, but we could have we could have invested in that. And and yeah. one of the things uh, I I received a phone call it was actually a Zoom meeting from the governor in my first week, and he asked, you know, what what does law enforcement need? And I reinforced to him, and this is where that thirty six million dollars comes in. We really need to increase the spending on law enforcement training. Yeah. And one of the things I pointed out to him was, you know, it's been very clear that the citizens of the state of Washington and a lot of our legislatures through their attempted reforms, they want perfect performance out of their law enforcement. That yeah. is the expectation that there are no mistakes. Well, we do not train our deputies. We do not train our police officers well enough and long enough to deliver 
perfect performance every time. And it looks like government's trying to dictate how you train in every scenario. They want to pick and choose. I saw some media coverage on that. And, you know, obviously law enforcement knows their job. Most people can't imagine that, you know, you put yourself in a situation with a robbery suspect. Some people might not ever experience that in your life. Uh, You're asking officers to do multiple bad scenarios in a day sometimes. We are. And, And I think it's important for the public to understand you know, the training that we receive, while we do receive quite a bit, mm-hmm. when you're expecting perfect performance, making a split second decision where you're considering what legally can I do? What do I have to do that will be effective? Can I deliver that technique? Say it's a use of force technique. Can I deliver it effectively? Will it be overpowered? And if I am overpowered, how do I adjust and readjust, still stay within the bounds of the law and stay alive and right. not hurt this person that I am having to use force on. And you're making those decisions in a split second. And then we all of a sudden have the legislature come in, change the law, change all the rules. And now we have to figure it all out again. Sure. And we do that. You would think, now I, I use the, the Navy SEAL example with training to kind of articulate how little training we have for the job we do. Navy SEALs are our special forces. They perform perfectly most of the time. But there are times if they go out for an operation that might take a month, they would train for a year for that particular operation. And there might be a two-day operation they might train four months for to get it perfect. We train our cops 40 hours a year, and their use of force, they might get four a year. And we expect them to be perfect every single time. We need a more significant investment in training. It's going to take more cops, and it's going to take more money to train. You bet. What, well, and we don't have time today, but we hear the county commission's talking about a, a jail and, yes. a, and a tax. So what about moving some of the budget so there isn't a tax, but still a jail? <laughs> like that $36 million. Anyways, so unfortunately, we're out of time, but we're going to have to have you back in. Maybe we could get a quarterly report from you if you got time. I know that uh, you'll be making some trips over to the legislature, and I, I, that's going to take up some of your time. So we'll try sure to hit will. you at least, at, I don't know, when maybe when the legislative uh, action is done. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come back. And we definitely appreciate you, you know, addressing the listeners here for sure on the Right Spokane Perspective. All of that being said, Mike and Tim are out of here today. We'll be back at you and in your face again tomorrow. Bye-bye.